Have you tried changing your health year on year, resolving that this year things are going to be different, but nothing seems to change? Oftentimes, when things are not changing, we are following many wellness myths and not looking at the full picture, including our nutrition, recovery, stress management, leaving out mind-body connection. I want to introduce you to Wellness Redefined, a new podcast from Refillion Media that's here to dispel all your myths about wellness and fitness while sharing stories of how we redefine what it means to be healthy. On each episode, we'll be talking to experts from all walks of life who will share their own unique wellness journey and offer their perspective. I am your host, Tamika Rochester, founder and CEO of Harlem Cycle, a premier wellness space in New York City with a focus on indoor cycling. I've been an advocate for wellness since as early as I can remember. So if this sounds like something that could help change your life, go ahead and pause the show you're listening to and subscribe to Wellness Redefined on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Invisible Heat. I am Sadia Khan. And I'm Asad Bhatt. Today's story is from Friday, October 7th, 1983. We are in Griffin, Georgia, where a 23-year-old black man, Timothy Coggins, is out at People's Choice Club with his younger sister, Talisa. Coggins absolutely loves to dance and is a regular at the club. Everyone in town knows him and the Coggins family. He's well-liked and has many friends, black and white. Coggins' sister goes to use the bathroom and can't find her brother when she returns. She overhears clubgoers saying that two white men came looking for him and that he left with them. When she goes outside to check, he's gone. Coggins doesn't return home that night. Two days later, hunters come across the body of a black male. He's laying in a secluded clearing tucked between cornfields, under a power line and a giant oak known locally as the hanging tree. He only has on pants and underwear, which are down below his thighs. He's been stabbed repeatedly and is badly mutilated almost making it impossible to easily identify him. There are drag marks on the nearby road and tire marks in a large square, with deep stains of blood in the corners. A sweater lies inside out on the road. The case remains stone cold for 33 years. This is Invisible Hate. Welcome back to Invisible Heat, a weekly true crime podcast in which Asad and I attempt to uncover the ugly truth behind various hate crimes, both recent and historical. Yeah, that's right, Sadia. As our regular listeners know, many of the cases that we discuss involve crimes committed against minority groups. Our goal is to determine through a discussion of the nuances and complexities of these situations whether or not they can be considered a hate crime. Before we get started on this case, Sadia, how was your week? 
My week was fine, Asad. I don't have anything interesting to share this week, but I can hear Isha in the background. Yeah, you can hear my daughter Isha in the background. That's because we're in the midst of a big ice storm here in Portland. And so we've been hunkered down the last couple of days and unable to get out to daycare and, and whatnot. Yeah, so if you hear Isha throughout the, the case, she's just listening uh, intently uh, now. It's interesting you said ice storm because we had a snowstorm and we still have snow so i don't know if which one is worse ice or snowstorm <laughs> well i'll tell you the problem with the ice storm <laughs> that i have is uh, in portland uh, we get these so rarely that uh, they don't really treat the roads or the sidewalks oh, yeah. and so walking the dog this morning i nearly slipped and fell just on my front lawn because it was so slippery and so it just makes um leaving the house uh really tough but you know all in all it's not the worst thing in the world <laughs> ice storm is probably worse than snowstorm but anyways yeah let's get started Asif. yeah let's get started i want to hear more about this case So Asad, I know I've just given you a short summary of this crime, but does it remind you of another case we've covered? Yeah, you know, I think it reminds me of that case that we did uh, that was a monumental case uh, on James Bird Jr. from, uh, I think it happened in the, the 1990s. Exactly. Asad, I can't get over how many similarities there are from the environment to the victim's personality to the perpetrators and the extremely, extremely disturbing manner of death. This time we are in Georgia, though not Texas, and it's 15 years earlier, in 1983. Griffin is the largest city in Spalding County, a rural farming area 45 minutes south of Atlanta. It's a former mill town suffering from a high unemployment rate, single-parent families, low education, and teen pregnancy. There is very little intermingling residents stay on their own black or white side of town. The KKK is active there. Even, get this, marching in the town Christmas parade. Whoa, that's crazy. I've never heard that before, Sadi, of the KKK marching, at, especially, I guess, in the in the 80s. That just seems really wild to me and outside of my scope of understanding of the KKK. But why would it, Asad? I mean, until, what, the 60s, there was segregation in the U.S.? So it's, what, like maybe 20 years in? Yeah, I just, you know, I guess I, I, I recognize that they were prevalent and around, but I guess to be that kind of emboldened and supported by a community that they would march in a Christmas parade is just, I guess I just have never really seen or read that before. So, yeah, it's just it was surprising to me how public they are. The use of the N-word is prevalent. There is tension between law enforcement and black residents because of fear and distrust. That said, you have the Coggins family, a large and loving fixture in town that has lived there happily for generations. Timothy, or Tim, is the fourth child of eight, a fun-loving, happy-go-lucky type. As a child, he narrowly survived getting hit by a car, making him even more dotted upon. He's especially close to his mom and sister, Talisa, though it's said that Coggins never met a stranger. On that Friday night, he's headed to People's Choice to dance, which is no surprise as he loves to party and entertain. He can be found there often both for fun and to do odd jobs for his friend that owns it. You know what I said? I was thinking, 
how is this dance club in rural Georgia? Does it happen there? Like I was <laughs> I was thinking about that. Yeah, yeah, I guess there are dance clubs everywhere. So, uh, yeah, I'm uh, not surprised. People like to go out and, and have fun. And, and maybe their definition of a nightclub or a dance club is different than uh, what you might be thinking. But yeah, I mean, you know, generally people like to go congregate and have a good time no matter where they are in the country. You're right, Asit, because the term club is generous here. People's Choice is a tiny brick building on a quiet country road that serves hot barbecue and drinks. Oh, nice. Hot barbecue. I'd take that. It's a predominantly black club playing music by predominantly black musicians where people come to dance. On Coggins' way to the club, his friend drives by, Deputy Jesse Gates. Coggins is walking and flags him down for a ride. Gates is one of the few black officers in Spalding County. Coggins casually mentions to Gates during the ride that he's been seeing a white woman. Mm, interesting. Gates tells Coggins to watch himself as interracial dating isn't really accepted in Griffin. Mm. Coggins takes no heed having befriended and dated white people before. When they arrive at People's Choice, Gates notices three white men by the front door that he doesn't recognize. Inside that club, there is also a white woman, Ruth Guy, aka Mickey. She's been there a few times. Coggins is dancing with her, which unnerves his sister. After Talisa returns from the bathroom, Coggins is nowhere to be found. She's not immediately worried. Even when she returns home late in the night and Coggins isn't there, he's so social and often crashes on people's couches. So she thinks he's probably with his friends. Yeah, this just seems like if you were in the same situation, I think you would feel maybe a little bit worried, but not super concerned because the behavior isn't out of the norm for you know, your brother, your, who you're with. And so, yeah, I totally get that. She probably wasn't concerned. And, you know, again, this is the 1980s. So, you know, obviously pre-cell phones. And so there's no way for her to immediately uh, check in on, on her brother. Right, Asit. So we are going to take a quick break. When we get back, we'll talk about what happens that night. Welcome back to Invisible Heat. So I said back to the evening of October 7th, 1983, when Coggins' sister finds that he still isn't home. Unfortunately, Coggins is not okay. He's seen that night in a truck with the white woman from the club, Mickey, as well as a proud white supremacist, Frank Gebhardt, and Gebhardt's brother-in-law, William Moore Sr., Mickey is also Gebhardt's girlfriend. Oh. So, yeah, I guess I, I was assuming that Mickey was the girl that Coggins was seeing, but it's, it seems like that's not the case. And so so Mickey is Gebhardt's girlfriend, and William Moore is Gebhardt's brother-in-law, and they all are in the truck with Coggins leaving the club. Exactly. Now, Gebhardt, who dropped out of school after sixth grade, is known for violence, racial slurs, being in trouble with the law, and using alcohol mm. and drugs. Moore also has a reputation for being violent and getting in trouble. Seem like stand-up people. Yeah. <laughs> they are at a trailer park suspiciously close to the obscure murder site where the latter three live. Oh, interesting. Okay. 
They then drive Goggins to the nearby clearing and force him to exit the vehicle. They strike him in the head, crushing his skull and likely stab him in his knees so he is unable to run. Wow. He is stabbed 29 times in total, mostly in the torso and back and he has two large X's carved across his chest and back, apparently to represent a confederate flag. Wow, so brutal. And I had also no idea that two large X's carved in someone's body represents the confederate flag. Just oof, so violent. Asad, I was thinking the same thing, right? Symbolism here is so scary. Yep. He is chained to the back of the truck and dragged feet first along the square pattern latest scene. His lungs are punctured, his teeth knocked out, his clothes missing or shredded. Worst of all, his autopsy shows he's alive during the torture and dies later from blood loss. That's horrific. That to me is so, so messed up. Two black deputies, Oscar Jordan and Gates, who had given Coggins the lift to the club, start to investigate the murder. The body is so disfigured that they have trouble IDing the body. There's not a whole lot else at the scene. A Jack Daniels bottle, wooden table leg with electrical tape wrapped around it and the aforementioned tire marks. Officer Jordan is tasked with showing a photo of the body around town in an attempt to identify him. He goes to the People's Choice Club where someone remarks that it looks like Coggins. Jordan heads to the Coggins family home and they confirm it's Coggins, mostly through a tattoo on his hand. Wow, yeah, just so disfigured and so the body was so harmed that, yeah, they can only identified through the tattoo on his hand. That's really oof, so sad. As word of Coggins' death reaches folks in town, rumors begin to fly that Coggins was familiar with a few white men outside the club and got into car with them, that Coggins was sleeping with Mickey, who was romantically involved with Gebhardt, that Coggins and his friend Danny, who had been killed suspiciously three weeks before, owed some white people $600, that they had been given to score pot but instead held on to. Mm. The hanging tree is also where drug deals were known to take place, so it fits. Given the nature of the wounds, one thing is clear. This was personal, a crime of passion. But these are all just rumors, right? Nothing here has been confirmed so far in terms of where they are in the case. and so Exactly, Asad. Meanwhile, the family starts getting harassed. Oh, wow. A bloody t-shirt is left on the school bus that Coggins' stepfather drives. Threatening phone calls saying not to look into the killer are made to the house. A decapitated dog is left in their home. Jesus. A brick wrapped with a piece of paper saying, and I quote, Hush or you're next on it unquote, is thrown at the house. This is like, yeah, being victimized twice, right? Like you're, exactly. your son dies or your family member dies and, and then you continue to get harassed. I mean, any one of these things that happened, a bloody t-shirt, a phone call, a decapitated dog, a brick, like 
if just one of those things happened, it would be traumatizing for all four of those things to happen and probably more after your family member has died. It's just, uh, wow, someone really didn't want to get caught. But this also shows, Asad, that racism in America is so ubiquitous, right? It's everywhere. It is societal. It's systemic. At this time, yeah, for sure, yeah. At this time, even now, honestly, it still is. In some parts of the country, these things are probably still happening or some variation or some iteration of these things is happening, right? Now, the deputies do some digging and believe that Gebhardt and Moore are the men that Coggins owed money to and are thus suspects in the murder. Gebhardt is questioned and says he was at Mickey's all night, which she, by the way, confirms. Hmm. How messed up is that? Yeah. Moore never gets questioned. Just weeks in, the two deputies are abruptly pulled off the case. Jordan is reassigned to traffic duty and begins keeping a shotgun in his car for protection. Wow. Cates is told he's a road deputy, not an investigator, and that solving this wasn't his job. The case is reassigned to, guess who, Asad? Yeah, who? A white officer. Mm-hmm. It begins to go cold and remains so through six different sheriff's administrations. Stories of the murder circulate around town for years, but nobody does anything about it. Sally, this is just wild to me that such a violent thing could happen and then the police take a person that was investigating it off the case and then it just goes you know, stone cold for so many years where clearly it seems like there were suspects from the start that needed to be investigated and followed up upon. But, you know, sadly, if this seems surprising, let's just talk a little bit about Georgia's history. I was doing some research and according to the Equal Justice Initiative, Georgia has the second highest rate of black people lynched between the Civil War and World War II, only after Mississippi. Again, information I did not know prior to researching this. So then after slavery is abolished, whites in the South essentially inflict terror to try to maintain superiority in society. There's also segregation until 1961. Again, this is 20 years after that. Uh, Not to mention the lack of punishment for whites abusing blacks. And, you know, Sadia, there's a documentary about this case called In the Cold Dark Night, where a journalist and professor, Hank Klimanoff, talks about this a little bit. Here he is talking about it. It's helpful to look upon the South and to look at what happened as a succession of events that begins with the slave trade. Coming out of that, you will have laws against blacks that you don't have against whites. The distinction between the North and the South was that in the South, racial discrimination was mandated. It was required by law that you discriminate against blacks. You know, sadly, interestingly, the Equal Justice Initiative says the motive for 25% of Southern lynchings was revulsion at sexual relations between black men and white women. I said this is so sad, but it's not surprising to me at all. And I've lived in this country for only 20 years. And of course, not all Georgia is racist. We've said this before. We cannot blame entire populations for crimes of a few. But I think in case of white supremacy and racism, it's all systemic. And that's the difference, right? 
So people may not be racist, but the systems and structures in the U.S. are racist and they uphold white supremacy in so many ways. 33 years after Coggins' murder, so 2016, the case is assigned to a new Georgia Bureau of Investigations or GBI agent, Jared Coleman. The GBI cycles through old unsolved cases about every six months, assigning them to new investigators. Only about 1% of these cold cases are ever solved. Coleman, however, thinks the case is solvable and asks that it gets reopened. Aiding this effort is Spalding's new sheriff, Daryl Dix, who agrees that the case deserves more attention. He fears that police were complicit in leaving the case unsolved. Mm. I'm so glad somebody is doing the right thing, Asad. He's also on a mission to strengthen law enforcement's relationship with the county's black residents. Dix assigns a county deputy to work alongside ancient Coleman. You know, Asad, it strikes me from working on this podcast just how many investigations get tabled if there aren't enough people asking questions, media putting pressure on our advocates for the victims, right? I mean, there is very much a hierarchy of precedence based on bias and press coverage. It's just gross. And it seems like Isha agrees with me. <laughs> yeah, Isha has a lot to say on this. But yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think it's so sad that so many victims in the States, they're crimes remain unsolved because they didn't have the right color skin or they didn't get enough uh, coverage from the press or from the DA's office or from the police um, investigating the crimes. And you can see how easily it happens. And, you know, obviously sometimes it's just negligence and sometimes it's racism. And as you said, it's gross. I said in this case, it's as if the police here were actually actively working to not get this solved. These new investigators discover that most of the evidence from the original file has gone missing. Oh, whoa. Including Coggins' pants. While going through files, they find a diary belonging to the former deputy. Why the hell would he put a diary yeah, there? Yeah, that is, seems very interesting to me, yeah. Interesting, right? It proves that several members of the sheriff's and police departments were in the KKK and contributed to the original investigation ending. The N-word was common even among law enforcement officials. This just seems like it's out of a movie, right? Like there's stuff missing, there's you know evidence that was never kind of brought to light and that the police and sheriff department were part of the KKK and yeah. like it just seems like we've seen this in in a movie and you know I guess from my perspective sometimes when I'm watching that stuff I'm like you know this doesn't really happen in real life but clearly it it has it does and seemingly often it's just it's so crazy it does Asad and that's why we always talk about systems and structures and not individuals and I don't know why so many people get offended when someone says there is systemic racism in America they would much rather us accuse individuals than systems which to me is bizarre but anyways in this case the new team starts questioning the original suspects. Gebhardt, now 59 and in jail for sexual assault says he knows nothing. When asked about the potential relationship between Mickey and Coggins, he gets enraged. 
calling Coggins the N-word. Gebhard insists he didn't know Coggins but didn't care if he was killed because he should have been minding his own business. Moore, now 58, is questioned and also says he's never heard of the murder and doesn't know anything. Mickey, who left the state permanently a week or two after the murder, had died in 2010. Asad, let's take another quick break before we see how the new investigators crack this cold case. Welcome back to Invisible Hate. Now, Asad, I was telling you about the new investigators. Yeah, seems like they're moving pretty quickly and getting stuff done. They absolutely are. The sheriff's department does something unconventional next. They tell reporters they are close to making an arrest in hopes people will come forward with information. And guess what, Asad? Yeah. People do. Wow. The trailer park manager states that Moore's wife, Gebhard's sister, told her before murder that her husband and brother were going to kill a man and drag him by car. Whoa. A neighbor from the trailer park says Gebhard told him he had changed Coggins to the truck and Moore had killed him. That witness also, however, said he had told authorities at the time Another witness, Christopher Vaughan, had actually been sending letters to the police for years wow. saying he had information but was ignored. Oh my goodness. Vaughan at the time is in prison for a child molestation charge, however. He's actually in the same prison as Gebhardt. And it can be tricky trusting inmates, right, who may exchange testimony for reduced sentences. That happens a lot. Yeah, right. Now, these new investigators do believe Juan, though. He was 10 years old in 1983 and had been part of the group of squirrel hunters that had found the body. Juan says he'd heard Gebhard bragging about the murder over the years. He didn't know of any drug money owed, but he did say... Gebhard knew of Coggins' affair with Mickey. So as it to your point earlier, Coggins was probably in a relationship with Mickey. Hmm. Gebhard allegedly lured Coggins to go to Mickey's place at the trailer park, started arguing with Coggins about Mickey and took off with him in a vehicle towards where the body was found. Hmm. Vaughn shares details investigators had never heard, including that Gebhard had thrown the murder weapon down his well. Wow. Next, the GBI taps Gebhard's sister's phone, Smart, as she is the one he most often calls from prison. They also record from Vaughn's cell to try to capture a conversation with Gebhard that will render enough cause for a search warrant. Gebhard neither admits nor denies the murder, but with Vaughn's statement and Gebhard's lack of denial, the search warrant is awarded for Gebhard's property. Friends and family of the suspects claim the overeager sheriff is railroading the man. Are you surprised, Asit, by their reaction? Yeah, I mean, I think you generally want to make sure that you're doing things by the law, and if a search warrant was issued, then obviously a judge thought that there was enough information to go on to, to issue it. But, you know, as we just talked about, people can be corrupt and overeager. And as we described this area at this time, I can understand why friends and family of the suspect would be supportive of the suspect. Investigators 
flush Gepard's well. Among a heap of trash, they find Adidas sneakers from 1983, like the ones Coggins wore, a slashed t-shirt matching his stab wounds, part of a chain, and the handle of a steak knife. Hmm. Either because of the water left in the well or the high pressure hose used to flush everything out, no DNA is detected on the items. One of the original deputies comes out of retirement to officially make the arrests. So the arrests are finally, finally made. Now, as said, listeners may be thinking, why didn't people come forward, right? Yeah. And it seems like Gebhard was making frequent confessions over the years, but still nobody came forward. It's said that people were terrified of retribution from Gebhard and more. Sure. Gebhard even said that if he is given the name of a witness, they wouldn't testify. Wow. And imagine, Asad, these are white people, acquaintances, friends, family members. I can't even imagine how the Coggins family feels. Right, especially if they've been the victim of harassment in the years after the murder. So, Sally, what happens at the trial? Gebhard is tried first and shows no emotion. While it feels promising, it's not an open and shut case, Asad. There's no DNA, little physical evidence, contradicting witness statements, and unreliable witnesses. The prosecutor emphasizes the brutality of the murder, the overkill. This is effective for the jury, but also the first time the family hears about the details of Coggins' death. Wow, I'm surprised that it took this long for them to hear the details. I think because there weren't any confessions in the past, right? Right, right, yeah. I guess that's right, yeah. Seven witnesses testified that Gebhard proudly confessed to the murder. Wow. The three that are incarcerated also testified that they were not offered reduced sentences. Which is good, right? Because then they are probably telling the truth. The defense only calls two former GBI agents in an effort to say that there's no better evidence against Gebhard now than in 1983, and that the jailhouse witnesses can't be trusted. Mm. The jury finds Gebhard guilty of malice murder, felony murder, aggravated battery, aggravated assault, and concealing the death of another. On June 26, 2018, he is sentenced to life plus 30 years. His attorney says he feels his client was used as, and I quote, Retribution for the racism of the past, unquote. I completely disagree with this, especially the part about the past. Racism still exists, and I don't think this was a retribution. He confessed to a million people. Anyways, after Gebhard's conviction, Moore pleads guilty. His charges are lessened to manslaughter and concealing the death of another he gets a 20-year sentence plus 10 years probation. I said, I'm confused. I thought Moore was the one who killed Coggins. Yeah, I think that there wasn't enough evidence to convict him. And based on what you said, I think Gebhardt was the one that was bragging about the death or the murder. And I don't think Moore was uh, doing that as much. And so maybe they just felt like there wasn't enough evidence to convict Moore. Yeah, you're right. Moore is also banned from Spalding County and adjoining areas, which I thought was interesting. Why would they do that? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe to make sure that 
uh, no harm comes to the family or doesn't tamper with any potential crime scenes or, or something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Anyways, Moore dies after three years in 2021. His attorney, who's black, by the way, says, and I quote, he wasn't remorseful because he felt he didn't do anything wrong, unquote. Can you imagine representing somebody like Moore? <laughs> I guess I can. I think that everybody deserves their representation and regardless of how bad the person may or may not be. But yeah, I, I totally get that. For some people, the idea of representing someone that could have done something as horrific as this is troublesome. Hmm. Three family members or acquaintances of Gebhardt, two of whom are law enforcement employees, are also charged with obstruction of justice. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. The Coggins family celebrates holding a memorial service after the trial. They finally add a headstone to Coggins' grave, which they hadn't done for fear of desecration. Wow. How sad is yeah, that, Yeah, that's crazy Asad? even after so long. A lot of things about this case has surprised me, and that is also something that I guess I never really thought about, that headstones could be desecrated by people that are against the case or against wanting to solve the case again surprising to me and uh, shows the little bubble that I'm in so this brings us to our final question was this a hate crime yeah I think this is an interesting case I think that you know for more it's a little bit more clear in that he obviously pled guilty to doing what he did maybe he did that to get a you know reduced sentence or or whatever but if he said he was guilty and all the other kind of witness statements I think clearly this was a result of Coggins being black and Moore being white. I think with Gephardt, it's a little bit more challenging for me because I think there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that, oh, clearly he was a racist and was bragging about having done the murder. But whether there was enough evidence that connected him to the crime, I think I struggle with that a little bit based on on what you talked about. I don't know. I guess I'm I'm struggling with his connection to all of this. And whether it was real or made up. To me, it's like the way this murder was carried out is emblematic of how cruel and violent it was and how other murders that are racially motivated are carried out in a similar fashion. Yeah. So to me, it does seem obviously like a hate crime. Again, having grown up, having lived in a town where KKK is mainstreamed, I assume Gebhardt and Moore probably were pretty much influenced by that ideology. And then not to be remorseful at all later and yeah. feel like this is what was coming and like somehow Coggins deserved all that happened to him shows lack of empathy and shows how they perceived Coggins, right? They didn't see him as fellow human. Right, right. So to me, it's pretty much a hate crime. Now, jealousy and rage could have played a role, yes. But those are factors that are not as profound as the racial aspect of it, Asad. As you were talking, it made me think about this, some things. You know, clearly what happened to him, the violence to his body, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, for me, that is indicative that some sort of hate crime took place because as you mentioned like in typical crimes like this that kind of violence doesn't happen i think where i struggle is whether the gephardt and more 
were the ones that committed the crime. And clearly, Gephardt was found guilty and Moore pled guilty. And they were horrible human beings. But I think for whatever reason, I'm struggling with that connection. Yeah, but both of them never denied, right? So yeah. at least Gebhardt did not deny. Yeah, you're so right. So if I did not commit a crime, I would deny it pretty vocally, right? I would say, no, I did not commit this crime, which shows that they committed the crime, they were part of it, and they weren't ashamed of it. Yeah, right, right. I'm not shedding any tears about them being in jail. So Sadi, what is the latest on all of this? I said, unfortunately, progress has been slow to come in Griffin. There are still areas that are informally segregated. Can you believe that? The Spalding County Sheriff's Office is slowly improving. Gebhard is currently incarcerated at the Georgia State Prison in Reedsville with no possibility of parole, which is great. He continues to maintain his innocence, which to me is a bit messed up because he doesn't deny participating in the crime, mm. but then he also says he's innocent. This is just crazy to me, Hasid. He was denied a motion for a new trial by the Spalding County Superior Court. Sadly, in 2001, Coggins' oldest brother, Eugene, died in police custody. Mm. Evidently, he was high on different drugs and pounding on his grandmother's door, so they called police for assistance. A 526-pound Police officer restrained him by laying on Eugene as he was pepper sprayed. He was taken into the jail where he was apparently choked, placed in isolation and found dead two hours later. The family did win a civil suit but never got the full or real story out. As for Timothy's death, his niece says they had long ago forgiven whoever was responsible leaving it in God's hands. Mm. This was a tough story, Asad. Yeah, I don't disagree with you, Sadia. This was a a tough one and really sad, and I, I certainly learned a lot, and I hope our listeners did as well. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Invisible Hate. If you want to learn more, check out our links in the show notes about the case. And also, please email us your thoughts. We'd love to know what you think about this story or any other story that we've covered in the past. Or if there's any other stories that you think we should cover, please let us know. You can email us at info at invisiblehatepodcast.com. You can also tweet us or hit us up on Instagram. Just search for Invisible Hate Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. Invisible Hate is a joint production of Refilion Media and Immigrantly Media. We would like to thank our team, which includes Michaela Strather, Emmanuel Monahan, Lindsay Gamble, and Paroma Chakravarti. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson. We will be back next week with another hate crime for us to analyze. Until next time, I am Sadia Khan. And I'm Asad Bhatt. Take care.